Okay, <laughs> welcome to episode three of the Christmas podcasts. Um, today, I am not sure what we will be talking about. I don't have a topic picked out, so I am just going to start talking about what one does in the pre-St. George test, and then perhaps we will find a focus. So, first of all, you enter in Collected Cantor, and then halt at X. Um, this isn't new, but it is um, new as far as going up the levels. So you don't do it since first level. You only start doing it um, once you get closer to the FEI. So it's, it's still a challenge. Um, so first of all, you want to make sure you pick the right lead to go in on. So I don't mean right versus left, I mean the correct lead. The easier one for your horse to halt from, the easier one to keep straight. Hopefully those are the same because you want a nice straight and square halt. Um, so for Dia, since she's the only horse I've ever ridden a pre-St. George test on, her better lead can be either lead. It depends on the day. Um, she's fairly even in both leads. So she doesn't have one that's much better than the other. Um, I will say for Ginny, the difference in her two leads is a little bit more clear. So she has a bigger left lead than right. Um, so I might choose then to enter on the right lead on Ginny because it is a smaller stride and therefore might be easier to collect and um, halt from. She does collect easier on the right lead because the stride is already smaller. Um, but with training, that might become more even. Of course, naturally, horses just tend to have their differences that they have. It, it doesn't necessarily mean a good or bad thing, just is what it is. But anyway, for this case, we're talking about Dia. So her canter that you enter in on depends on the day. I've entered in both left lead and right lead. I just kind of decide um, normally towards the end of my warm-up which one I'm going to enter on. Um, you do want to know in advance. Um, you don't want to have the bell ring and then go, oh, I have no idea what lead I should pick because those 45 seconds aren't when you want to be thinking about which lead you should go in on. Um, so whatever the case, you've picked your lead, it's whatever's the best that day or whatever's classically right for that horse, um, and then you halt at X. Um, so, how do you do a halt transition from a canter? Um, for most horses, it's about three or four strides of prep, um, at least in my experience, I would say. Um, and, again, most of my experience is Dia, so maybe I'll just specify that I am mostly talking about Dia with some of what I know about Ginny, some of what I know about Ice, some of what I know about other horses I've ridden for that downward transition, etc. I will just um, preface everything I say in this podcast with my experience is both limited and um, very variant. <laughs> so do with that what you will. In any case, I got three or four strides that I have to use to prepare for this halt transition. If I prepare too early, so that's five strides, um, I'll, I might get a balled up canter. Um, and that can also ruin a downward transition. You don't want the canter to be too tight. 
Um, you don't want it to be too big because either way in those two cases, the canter is too tight um, or the canter is too big. When you go to ask for that halt transition, the horse could kind of fall into it, which means kind of legs everywhere. They might trot, they might jig a few strides. Um, a couple like maybe one and a half walk steps into the halt is okay. That is acceptable. Um, what you don't want is two or three full walk strides into your halt. Uh, that's not what you want. So then you're going to pick up your trot after your halt. Um, and then you have an extended trot. I think I discussed this earlier, um, the logistics of going into extended trot, um, but you're going to want to check up for Dia. She's very strong. She's on the forehand, as discussed. You want to check up on her face um, to lift her head and her shoulders. Again, reins are attached to the shoulders. So when you're lifting like that, you should be picking up the shoulders directly, even though the action is on the mouth. Um, extended trot, cross the diagonal, and then sit down um, sit back down and bring her back from the extended trot just around that end letter. You don't want to start too soon um, and you don't want to spend too much time developing the extended trot. So you want to check up on the horse's face. If you're doing an HXK line, you're going to want to check up on their face right before H and then um, start the downward process on Dia five strides out from the letter knowing that she won't fully come back until just before K. Um, and then when I'm getting to K, where I actually want that coming back transition, I'll sit her down hard um, and be a little bit more clear about what I'm asking. But because she's so heavy on the forehand and loves that extended trot so much, um, it does take five strides of kind of already asking her to sit down before I know that she actually will when I give that kind of more jarring command to come back. Um, so I haven't done the pre-St. George in a while, so I'm kind of just generally going through what you do in the test. This isn't necessarily in the correct order. Um, so then you can have a shoulder in <clears throat> to a half circle, half circle, um, half pass. Um, oh, sorry, that's for the 3-3. Three, three. So you're going to have a shoulder in to an 8 meter to a half pass. So your shoulder in is um, your corner letter to your halfway down the wall letter. This is the same both ways. So um, you're going to want to use your corners. Always throw this test, use your corners. Um, the corners at this point... Um, should be a, a whole movement. <laughs> you want to treat your corners like a movement. So that's four or five strides right there that you have to position the horse in any way you need. You can put the haunches in, you can put the shoulders in, you can put the shoulders out, you can put the haunches out. Um, any major kind of fixes you need to do in the horse, this is a great time to do it. You're on a bending line, um, especially the corners down at A away from the judge. There's a lot you can do in them without the judges necessarily seeing. And the corners aren't particularly a part of any movement. So, if, so only if something really terrible happens in that corner will it be docked down somewhere else on your test. So if the horse becomes inverted, this means they bounce off the contact, stick their nose up. Um, 
if they do anything particularly noticeable. Um, so faltering in strides, that would be considered unbalanced. You might get a comment like that, which will dock you points. There are ways for points to come off of your overall score from things that are done in corners. Um, this also leads into the idea of the sacrificial score. So if you really need to do something, it doesn't matter if points are going to get taken off because it's either you do it now and you ruin one movement or you don't do it at all and you ruin the rest of the whole test. So sometimes you have to do that where you have a sacrificial score. So in any case, you go to your shoulder in. Um, the shoulder in is different the two ways on Dia. It's also different the two ways on Ginny. Um, Ginny has a harder time bending to the right um, and going into the left rein. So when you're positioning her shoulders in, um, it's easier for her to do it going left because she's bent left and I'm op I can kind of open that left rein a little bit and force her into it. Um, and when she's going to the right, she doesn't really want to bend right and it's a little harder to get her to go into that left rein when her shoulders are to the right. <clears throat> so, on Dia, she just has really large tank shoulders. <laughs> um, classically, when she's really good, she's stronger in the right rein, and but she can be stronger in either rein. Um, it tends to be easier to turn her off the right rein than off the left rein. Um, but again, that can change. She's an equal opportunity difficult turner, I will say. She doesn't like to move her shoulders because her shoulders are buried in dirt and they're hard to pick up and move. Um, so for the pre-St. George, this is the introduction to the 8 meter circle. The 8 meter circle is a very small circle for a very long, large horse like Dia. That is very little space to turn and she doesn't like to turn. Um, so the art of this circle is you have to start turning a little bit early when you're coming off the wall, use a sharp aid in the beginning, but then about halfway through your circle, right about when you're getting closest to the center line, um, she'll start to fall in. <laughs> so then you kind of have to back off immediately with how much outside aid you're using and support with the inside aids while continuing to turn because what's happening here is you're using such a strong aid to bring her around that first half of the circle and then you go and then since her shoulders are so big they start to fall in with that strong outside aid and she just starts to throw them over because that's easier than staying balanced around the whole circle so you kind of have to catch that before it happens so now right after this circle you're going to go into the half pass and i love this line it's in the 3-3 test as well. As I pointed out earlier, you do that half circle, half circle, half pass. The pre-St. George, it's the 8 meter to the half pass. So what I love about this kind of construction here, this whole line really, the shoulder in to the circle to the half pass, and then in the 3-3, it's shoulder in, half circle, half circle, half pass. But either way, shoulder in, and then you're circling, and then you're doing half pass. And what's wonderful about this line is you do your half pass, you get to your circle, the shoulders are already in, so you're already starting your circle. You're perfectly set up to begin the circle, and then you come off of the circle to go to the half pass, and again, you're already in that, or you can easily keep that angle 
And so you did your shoulder in earlier, and the shoulder in is a great way to begin the half pass. So if you're warming up to a half pass on a regular day, you'll probably do a shoulder in first. So I'll do a shoulder in down the long side, and then the next long side, I'll do a couple strides of shoulder in and then go into the half pass because the positioning for the shoulder in to the half pass is perfect. So then um, when you're done with your circle in the pre-St. George and in 3-3, your shoulders are already off the wall a little bit, and all you have to do is kind of bring the haunches off the wall with it while keeping that positioning, because you want the shoulders to lead a little bit. You don't want the haunches to lead. Um, this is kind of like leg yield, what I said. Um, you either want the horse to be perfectly parallel or the shoulders leading in both the leg yield and the half pass. Um, and the difference between the leg yield and the half pass just, um, to for clarity purposes the horse is bent in the direction of travel in the half pass in the leg yield they're bent in the opposite direction of travel we can refer back to this later um and explain upon that more so in the pre-saint george you do your half pass and then you turn the opposite way of travel at the end so if i'm half passing right to left towards the center line, I'll then turn right at the end. Um, I don't know why this is, it's just how the test is. Um, and then there's another extended trot in here. Um, I don't believe there's a halt rein back, and there is um, the turn on the haunches. So we'll talk about the turn on the haunches. So in every test, um, the turn on the haunches left comes first, and then the turn on the haunches right. Um, so, you turn left at H, and then between G, and which is the letter on the center line, um, G and M, turn on the haunches left. So, D is a very large horse, um, but actually doing the turn on the haunches on Ginny made my turn on the haunches on D a better. Now, I will explain this. So, when I used to, and when I was training the turn on the haunches with Dia, again, we're back to these large shoulders that don't want to come out of the dirt. So when I am trying to do a movement that makes the shoulders so very mobile, it's difficult to, it's just difficult in general. You want the haunches not to be stagnant. You don't want them to be glued to the ground and her just kind of spinning around her haunches. They need to be doing these little tiny like quarter or half steps around your little tiny circle that you're doing. Um, and your front end, your shoulders, can't be spinning either. So you're looking for um, a, a kind of rhythm. Um, and the way we think about this is your walk rhythm going into the turn on the haunches should be the same when you're in the turn on the haunches. So it should be one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, the entire time. The horse shouldn't do one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. So when I slowed down there, that was the turn on the haunches. Um, and you don't want the horse to slow down too much. That's kind of like a, 
a loss of your rhythm that could be marked down on the test, just overall too slow. Um, I've gotten comments that say stuck. So the horse seems to falter when they go into the movement, during the movement, and as they come out of the movement, um, like a couple of the strides will just freeze. So you'll start your turn on the haunches, you'll have good mobility, the horse will be turning around, and then all of a sudden they'll just kind of feel stuck. So this can happen to Dia because her shoulders are so heavy and difficult for her to move. She'll kind of get halfway through that turn on the haunches and then just kind of falter and stay stuck there. So what do you do about this? Well, you add leg. What do you do when a horse gets stuck? You add some leg. Now, this is where things get complicated. So I feel Dia start to slow down and get stuck. I add a little leg. I lift with my outside rein. Since I'm beginning with this turn on the haunches left, I'm using that right rein to bring the shoulders up and around because the rein is attached to the shoulders. I'm adding that leg to keep her legs moving so she isn't stuck. So I'm lifting the shoulders and telling her to keep moving at the same time. That's what that outside rein and leg action is. Is doing. Now we run the risk of her getting too fast and then spinning. So that's the planting of the hind legs and just kind of throwing the shoulders around. Now that I've told her to be mobile and told her to move, she might say, okay, well, how's this? And then just spin all the way around um, and finish the movement. So this is very unbalanced. You don't want them to do this. You're losing your balance. You're losing your rhythm. So now you've gone from one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one. <laughs> so you have normal rhythm, it's going well, then the horse gets stuck, and then it gets faster, and then you're done. So that's very unbalanced and not rhythmic at all. Um, so again, this is kind of a game of just timing of the aids, really. So I'm preventing her from getting stuck by kind of adding leg and using that outside rein a little stronger when I feel that she might become stuck soon. Um, in combination with like a, a little bit of a strong half haul on the front. Um, and this is where I used to tend to get into this position of kind of water skiing a little bit with my seat where I would kind of lean back into it in an effort to hold up the hind end and kind of really forcibly turn the shoulders around. Um, and this worked However, it would slow the rhythm of the overall turn on the haunches. So my average turn on the haunches, even the good ones, were I would enter in a normal walk. So that's one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. So what you hear there is I'm entering in perfectly normal walk. I'm exiting in a perfect normal walk. Um, but my rhythm in the actual turn on the haunches itself slows down a little bit. It's not a lot, it's not particularly significant, but it is enough to lower my points maybe a little bit, and it's not 100% accurate to the movement. You do want to keep that continuous rhythm, and the reason for that was because I was so forcibly moving her around on that circle, and quite literally putting my back into it. So with Ginny, she doesn't have those big, chunky, strong, glued down shoulders that Dia has, so I never had to put myself in that kind of water skiing, leaning back, um, pelvic tilt position with my seat. Again, with Dia, this wasn't particularly obvious, it was just a slight torque, um, but with Ginny, wasn't necessary because I wasn't moving that much worse. She's simply a lot lighter than Dia is and quicker on her feet, etc. Um, so Ginny's rhythm in the turn on the haunches tends to be quite consistent. I mean, she's not as well trained as Dia, so 
things happen. Sometimes she's faster, sometimes she does get a little stuck and slower, um, but those are all kinks that will eventually, um, probably soon, be worked out because she is in training. I mean, let's keep in mind, Dia is 16. She's been training the pre-St. George at the pre-St. George level for about a year now, and Ginny is seven, has never trained at the pre-St. George level before. Um, she's just shown 3-3. A little bit of fourth level, but uh, as as you may know, I am not the biggest fan of fourth level, so I'm not really gonna count that at the moment. And she didn't do four three, so she really hasn't been training the pre Saint George level. So let's keep that in mind when we're talking about these two horses. Even though Ginny has significantly more talent than Dia has, Dia is much better trained at this point. So, Ginny's turn on the haunches um, is just kind of easier to fix because she's so light on her feet. Um, so when she does these little things like get stuck or start to spin, it can be, it requires a lot less strong aid to fix. I can give a much lighter aid and expect the same or better results than with Dia. So by kind of perf almost perfecting my craft a little bit, the turn on the haunches with a horse that's so light like Ginny, um, without leaning back to do so, I was then able to apply it to Dia and kind of do the same aids I was doing on Ginny, just stronger on Dia without using my back, which was what um, was changing the rhythm because when you tuck your seat more, which is what I was doing with Dia a little too much in those early turns on the, on the haunches that I was teaching her, when you kind of tuck your seat and tuck your butt underneath you too much, it can shorten the strides and constrict the horse more than you need them to be for the turn on the haunches. So back to the pre-St. George test, after you do your walk work, um, so you have the turns on the haunches and the extended walk. For the extended walk, the interesting thing about the Pre-St. George test is it actually starts on the wall. It doesn't start on the diagonal line. Um, so I believe it is um, a R to V line, um, and then the canter's at K. But you're going to want to start your extended walk. Hold on, what am I? Either way, it's a half letter to a half letter, um, but you start the extended walk at a letter before the half letter. So if I'm coming out of corner, that's when I'm starting the extended walk. And then I come off of the wall at the half letter, go to the next half letter across the arena. And by the time I get to that other side wall, I need to be back in collected walk. So it's a little bit of a funky line because it starts on the wall. Um, and then you have that kind of four strides between the half letter and the K corner. <laughs> We're back to the lovely left lead. <laughs> Dia hates picking up the left lead in the middle of the test. And of course, um, just like 3-3, the left lead is the one that you pick up first for the pre-St. George. It's that K corner. Horses learn to hate this K corner. Um, and by hate it, I mean just overly anticipate it because you, they get used to it. A lot of horses spend a lot of time doing 3-3 and spend a lot of time doing the pre-St. George. Um, and they know that after that extended walk, um, because as I said, it's 
from V to, what did I say? V to R, and then K or K. Either way, there's K or K, but I'm terrible with letters. Um, even though I've been doing this sport forever, <laughs> I'm still terrible with the letters. Um, at least remembering them in my head. I should be looking at a, um, an arena right now. That would be helpful. Anyway. Okay, so I drew myself an arena. Um, so your extended walk is MRV. So you start the extended walk at R, I mean at M, which is right after those turns on the haunches I was just talking about. And then you extend a walk those couple strides before R, and then extend a walk all the way R to V. And the extended walk um, is an extension of the stride and the neck. So the length of neck determines the length of stride. I'm not sure if you've ever heard that. Um, but yeah, the horse could only step out as far as its nose. The hoof will never go past the horse's nose. They can't put their leg past their nose. So the length of neck determines length of stride. Um, so extended walk is an extension of the neck and the stride. So at V, you have to collect the walk. Um, and then at K, you're going to pick up left lead. And then immediately over on the other side at F, so you're going to canter through the short side and then at F, you're going to half pass to X and then do a flying change and then half pass to M and then do a flying change. Um, so I've had a couple mistakes in this line. Um, there's a similar line in the 4-3 test where you actually half pass the other way. So you're on right lead and then you half pass K to X and then change and then half pass X to H and then change. So it's the same, just flipped in the 4-3 test. Um, so the first time I did this in a test was in the 4-3 and I didn't make it back to the wall. Um, I did that also. It was a little bit rough around the edges at regional championships this year at the Pre-St. George. Um, so a lot of things can happen in this line. If the canner you pick up at K is too balled up when you get to F to do your half pass, um, this has happened to me before, the horse will drop into trot, um, which is a whole mess because your flying change is a mark um, and your next half pass is a mark. Um, and then that change at M is a mark. So you have all of these marks that are determined by the fact that your horse better stay in canter and continue the lines. So if your horse drops in a shot, it can be a whole mess. It's very difficult to pick up a canter in the middle of a half pass line, never mind get ready for a change. So it's very important that you have the right canter. Um, and the only time you have to fix that is between K and F. But really, it's between K and just a little bit after A because when you start to get in that corner for F, you need to be positioning for the half pass. You don't have time to fix the canter anymore. You have to get those shoulders in front of the horse and um, kind of angle them a little bit into a shoulder in on that line so that all you have to do is pick up the haunches and push them over. So you really don't have that much time to fix your canter. So it's really important that you pick up at K the canter that you need to do the half pass immediately. So do your half pass to X. Um, you want to get there a couple strides before X. 
so you have one stride of straight and then one stride is your change and then um, you want half pass right after that change and then you half pass and you want to get a couple strides before M so like one one stride before M um, and then your change should be just before M you don't ever want to do a flying change in the corner Flying changes have to be straight in order to be accurate. Um, they have to be square and straight. And corners are bending lines. So you should never be doing a change in the corner. This isn't to say that you shouldn't do a change in the corner. If you have to in the middle of a test, absolutely do your change in the corner. Don't wait until after the corner um, because you'll lose way more points that way. It's just way better for your training purposes, for practice purposes, for all intents and purposes, unless you are in a test and absolutely need to do that change in the corner, do not do the change in the corner. Always wait until you have a straight line to do a change on. Um, so, after you do your half pass back to M, you do your change, now, right away you're getting ready for the pirouettes so the trot work goes by in this test fairly with a good balance with good rhythm you kind of weave through all the movements easily you get to the canner and it is bam 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 for movements um because you pick up that canner okay you do your half pass and you're already changing then you're already half passing the other way and then you're changing and then right after you do that change at m you have to start thinking about your pirouette, which is coming, because you need to collect your canter and kind of know that you have in whatever canter you're doing right now, the canter for the pirouette. Now, I was talking about this in an earlier podcast, how you have different canters for different movements. So I think I was saying the pirouette canter is very different from the tempi change canter. Well, the tempi change canter and the pirouette canter are also both very different from your half pass canter. Now, you can do a change in pretty much any canter. I should clarify that, which is why it doesn't necessarily matter that I'm doing the half-pass canter to a change to a half-pass to a change. I can totally expect to get those single changes, but it should be noted that these are single changes. You can do a single change from almost any canter, but the quality of that change can vary. Um, you should be able to get very good changes at an average half-pass canter, at an average extended canter, um, at an average tempi canter. Those are all good canters for changes. You can't do a good change out of a pirouette canter, I will say. Um, the horse will probably ball up, take a half stride, maybe do a little kind of bouncy stride, um, and then do a change. So it's very likely that if you ask for a change in pirouette canter, the change will be late because the horse isn't ready. Um, so it won't be on your aids. But in any case, there are a lot of canters you can do a change from. It just should be noted that you can do a single change from a lot of canters. You can't necessarily do a line of changes. So that's why I'm differentiating between a half-pass canter per se and a tempi change canter. A line of changes is a lot more challenging than one single change, and so it requires an entirely different balance, size of stride, um, and just type of canter overall. So now that you've done your half pass and your change in the corner M, you are turning towards C, and between C and H, you're riding that corner, and with Dia, 
prepare wet canter is challenging because, again, we're back to these large shoulders that are already in the dirt. Um, a horse's head and carriage needs to be lower in order to achieve a pirouette. Um, they can't do a pirouette with their head up in the air. And Dia already wants her head down. Um, so this presents a very big challenge because I need to be able to put her head down and I start thinking about that between C and H. I may not start doing it, but I'll start thinking about it. And then when I turn from H towards X on that line, I need to start putting her head down and slowing the canter with my seat, tightening the strides with my seat, and I need to make sure I can bury my spurs. At this point, if I have turned onto the line at H and she won't let me touch her with my legs, I'm done. I can't get a pirouette. And this is because if I don't have my spurs on, then she's not on my seat and on my leg. If I can bury my spurs into her sides and have her collect instead of spurt forward, then I know I have a good pirouette. But if I go to touch her with my legs and she just spurts off into the distance, then there's no way I can do a pirouette. And this is true for a lot of things that you want to do with a horse. If you can't get your legs on, you won't be able to do them for a lot of movements. But with the pirouettes, it's particularly true because I need to be able to have my legs on in order to ask her to turn around the circle while keeping her energy while keeping that bounce in the stride, while keeping the suspension. I need to make sure that she won't fall into walk or fall into trot halfway through that pirouette. And the only way I'm going to do that is with my spurs on, encouraging her to keep up and forward around the pirouette. Um, so with a lot of movements, you can kind of muddle by without having your leg on, and you really can't do that in the pirouettes because the horse will just fall out of them. Um, if, you're, if there's no clear aid and there's no way for you to get your legs on, the horse won't continue to go forward. So Dia's head is a little bit down. I have the stride collected. She's on my seat. She's hopefully on my legs. I have my spurs buried. I'm going to do the pirouette left. So you want to do the pirouette left before X. Don't wait until you get to X to ask. Um, the lines for the pirouette are a little bit different for Dia. So for my left lead pirouette, it's a lot easier. The circle's tighter. Um, pirouette is tighter, I mean. Um, and it's just an easier pirouette to do. It's I don't know if it's good or bad that that's the one that I start with then, but it is what it is. So I turn the shoulders. This is similar to the aids in the turn of haunches. I mean, different gait, but same idea, right? The horse is turning around the haunches. The shoulders need to be mobile. Um, obviously, the pirouette is much more difficult. Um, but same idea. I'm using that outside rein. I have my spurs buried. I'm going to use a little bit more right spur than left spur because I'm asking her to turn off the right side to the left. Um, after I make it around this pirouette, she needs to go straight. So she was bent a little bit left. I'm now going to straighten her by using more right rein. I need to kick her up. So she needs to have a more up forward canter. I need to pick her head up a little bit, um, 
because she needs to go into this corner at H, and then when she's straight on the short side at C, I'm going to ask for a change. So let me walk you through this. Um, I want to get to the corner a little before H, so I'm going to be to the left of H. Then I'm going to make the corner actually a little bit shallow, and this is because my horse is massive, and she doesn't counter canter into corners well. It's very difficult for her. It's very challenging. It can be very unbalancing. She's actually fallen out of the canter. She's done this in a pre-St. George test. I ride a corner too deep after a pirouette, and she'll fall out of canter and trot because she's too unbalanced. She can't do it. So I make this corner a little bit more shallow. You probably won't get points taken off for doing this. Um, it's not particularly noticeable. As long as you're not wheeling around the corner, the judge shouldn't take any points off for it. So I go straight out of corner, um, and then I do, or I prepare to do, my change a stride before C, and then when she actually finishes the change and kind of like jumps down from the change, so the horse jumps up, kicks up into the change, and then comes down. So her front legs or her body should be in line with C. And that, both of those things are considered change at C. As long as part of the horse is at the letter, you're doing your change in the right place. Um, so that's like a stride and a half of space that you have to work with, which is why I try to do the, the change before the letter a little bit. Um, because it's much better to have a slightly early change than a late change. And if you plan to do a change early, if you plan to do any movement early, you actually have a higher chance of doing it kind of on time or in the right place than if you wait to the last minute and try to do it in exactly the right place. Um, so not only is doing a movement or a change not really noticeable if it's too early, but it's just a lot better than doing it late. Um, so I try to do my change before C. So now I have the pirouette right. More challenging than the pirouette to the left. More things to work on. So as I said, you want to ride into that corner. I'm turning into M. Um, to that MX line, and I want her to the left of the line. This is because the pirouette is a lot bigger this direction. It's harder for her to turn in a right pirouette. So when I put her to the left of the line instead of right on the line, um, so this means that if I were by the left of the line, so M to X, that line, I do it straight going to the left. So I am straight on the H to X line. When I leave that corner H, I am pointed straight at X. But when I go on to my pirouette line for the right lead, um, I come off at M, but I'm pointed between like K and A. So if I were to continue to go straight, I wouldn't be going towards X. I would be going between K and A in that far corner. Um, because I'm to the left of the line. So I want to start my pirouette before X, same as when I'm going to the left, um, and maybe even a little earlier because I know it's going to take her longer to start to turn. So I'm to the left of the line, I'm bending her right, I'm lifting the left rein, I have my left rein on, I'm starting to kind of pull her around off the left rein. I have more left spur than right spur, so that's my outside aids, and um, I need a little bit more of both spurs this way to keep her going because she's more likely to fall out via trot or walk this direction because it's harder for her. Um, this also comes down to Dia's 
issue with the right hind. Her right hind is weak. Um, just a fact of life for Dia. Her right hind is weak for whatever reason. And for the pirouettes, you're putting all of the weight on the right hind. So she's going to want to drop out. Um, it's very difficult for her to put all of her weight on her weakest leg. <laughs> um, so this is overall quite a challenge. So for the left lead, I can only get the pirouette to about a meter, a meter and a half in size. It can be actually a very accurately sized um, pirouette. To the right, she's more likely to do like a two meter pirouette. So this one is quite large. But here is where things start to come together a little bit. When I finish my pirouette line, I will be pointed exactly at M. And now you ask, well, Brenna, how did you do that? How did you do that with such a large pirouette? Well, I'll tell you, I had her to the left of the line to start. Very strategic. So when you put the horse to the left of the line, since she's doing such a large pirouette, when she's done with that pirouette, she'll actually be straight on the line. And that's the part the judge is paying attention to. So the judge will be like, huh, look at that. She's finishing in just the right spot. Yes, I am. Look at me go. It's a perfect pirouette. It's not, but at least we made it around. It's very hard for her to make it around. If I've made it this far in the test, <laughs> I might be able to breathe a little bit. Not really, because at this point I'm exhausted. But anyway, so now we're getting, we're straight on at M because of my strategic planning earlier. Um, again, you want to ride a slightly shallow corner so that she doesn't break. Um, again, she's exhausted now from putting all that weight on her right hind. So this is the corner that she broke in um, when I did a pre-St. George test forever ago. Um, so this corner definitely has to be shallow after doing all of that work. She's on her second pirouette. This is the most difficult one. I can't ride deep into this corner. She'll be way too unbalanced. So again, I do my change before C. Um, and now I'm back in the left lead and I have my five four tempies. So the four tempies are more difficult than the three tempies. Um, between C and H, so I've already kicked her up and gotten a bigger stride in my canter. I've already kind of done that work after the pirouette in order to get my change at C, but I'm gonna have to pick her up a little bit more and make sure she's with me in this CH corner. I'm gonna ride deep into this corner. Um, so I can kind of check all the body parts. So I'm going to make sure I have her right hind underneath of her. Um, I'm, so make sure she's feeling okay, kind of. Make sure that that right hind is doing all right now that it's done all that work. Make sure that it's loading properly. Um, make sure that that leg is still functioning after having to do the right pirouette. Um, then I'm going to want to make sure she's straight because, as I said before, you want to do straight changes. Um, so in this corner, I'm going to make sure she isn't kinked left or right. Um, so I'm going to hold on to that right rein a lot. I want her heavy in the right rein, as I said. I mean, I don't want her heavy, but if she's going to be heavy, it's it should be in the right rein. I don't want her hiding from the contact either. Um, and... Yeah, I'm just going to want to kick her shoulders up. So that's that sharp jab at the girth I think I talked about in an earlier podcast, I think the first one. Um, and now I am turning with my right rein onto this left four-tempi line. Um, and the four-tempis, so I'm riding big horse, 
and the four tempis, um, since there's more space between them, you have a lot of things to think about here. So, and unfortunately, so does the horse. Why do I say this is unfortunate? Because the more time a horse has to think, the more time they have to be distracted, to try and do something, um, to not be focused on you. So I turn onto this line, and I'm going to want to start my four tempis like two or three strides from turning onto the line, probably closer to two. So I'm starting my four tempis before the quarter line. So I'm going to do the first one, um, and then so I'm doing one, two, three, four, two, two, three, four, three, two, three, four, four, two, three, four, five. Um, and I should finish just after the quarter line towards F. So this is an HXF line. Um, what tends to happen in your four tempi line? Well, for Dia, and I think this is true for a lot of horses, um, from what I've done on Ginny, it's true. You'll do two or three of them, and then the horse might start to kind of extend their stride a little bit, get a little crazy with their legs, maybe start throwing legs around, um, getting a little unbalanced, they won't be quite as sat down as they were at the beginning of the line. They might just be kind of slowly stretching out like a slinky, um, the more changes you do. Um, it's quite normal, quite typical. It's difficult when you're asking them to kind of leap through the air like that repeatedly. It's difficult to bring them back onto the hind end. It's difficult to keep them there. Um, again, Dia is fairly well trained, so she doesn't have as much difficulty with this as she used to when she was first learning how to do them. She's very consistent about her four and three tempis. Um, they're very reliable. I can trust her to make it through a line of five four tempis and five three tempis almost any day of the week, um, even if she's had a bunch of time off, um, like two or three weeks of time off. I can pretty much get on her and within 20 minutes have a line of four five um, five four tempis and five three tempis. So she's doing fine, but when I was teaching them to her, and every so often um, when I begin my work with the fours and the threes, she might do this in one of the lines where she just kind of slowly gets a little bit more strung out. Um, so that's just about a strong half halt um, with your reins in the front end to lift the shoulders and then you have to tuck with your seat. So you have to be strategic for when you tuck with your seat on the tempi line. You don't want to tuck with your seat right before the change because then you risk balling up the canter and then you get that kind of half stride or little bouncy stride before the change. When you're in a tempi line, if you get that, then you've messed up your count. So that means that when you have a late change in a tempi line, that's a whole stride. So you're no longer doing four tempis. You may have gotten two four tempis and now a five tempi. Um, you also run the risk, if you're kind of keeping the horse too balled up, you run the risk of them taking a change too early. So then you might end up with a four tempi, a three tempi, and then a couple more four tempis and a three tempi. So they're kind of calling the shots a little bit. Um, so you have to be really strategic about when you tuck with your seat. So I do it after every change. So the horse does the change, I make sure they're straight and square. So with Dia, for instance, she likes to throw her shoulders right. Um, and that's particularly for her right diagonal, more so than her left diagonal, I think. But she's really an equal opportunity. Well, let me think about this for a second. Um, 
yeah, she'll really do it on both lines. She just likes to throw her shoulders right. So that's a strong right rein. Um, and I do that strong right rein before and during the change. And then if she's still throwing the shoulders right, I kind of then have to pick them up and put them back on the line after. So that's a really strong right rein. So I'm overall just kind of holding on to that right rein the whole time. And with Dia, you're just kind of holding on to the right rein the whole time anyway. Um, but there are particular times when you need more or less or, or a different version of contact with that right rein. So I'm tucking my seat after every change to kind of make sure that the hind end is tucked underneath of me and kind of be able to anticipate is the horse more likely to take a change early or take a change late and what can I do about that? Um, so I guess one of the good things about the four tempies is you have plenty of time in between to figure out what your horse needs. Unfortunately, the horse has plenty of time to think about what they're doing next as well. So instead of things being really rapid fire and them not having time to think about what they're doing all they have is time to think about what they're doing so a nervous horse a horse that doesn't know the movement very well a horse that's unfamiliar with tempi changes can get really nervous and start to anticipate they've done three four tempies for instance they're getting ready for their fourth one maybe they're starting to panic a little bit they're like oh my god i gotta do another one they're they know what's coming they might get a little squirrely with their legs which I say squirrely to mean just throwing their legs everywhere, but they get nervous. They have time to think. Um, so that's those are some of the struggles you have with your four tempi line. So this is your left lead HXF four tempi line. So now you have to get ready for your right lead three tempi line. This is a line of five threes. So. Um, same thing as I said before, you want to ride deep into that AK corner, um, turn straight onto the M line, maybe a little bit to the left of it. You can do this um, for the left lead line as well. So I might turn a little to the left of it just because I'm anticipating her throwing her shoulders right. And she'll throw her shoulders a little bit right for every change, um, which means if I'm straight on that line and she's having a really bad shoulder throwing day, I could end up pointed at R by the end of the line. Um, so I never want this to happen during a test, and it doesn't really happen during a test, but sometimes she just throws her shoulders more than other times. So you need to kind of plan in advance for that and point her more towards the middle of the CM corner instead of right at M, because if you do that, then by the time she's done with the line, she'll actually be pointed right at M. Similar strategy for the pirouettes. Um, so I'm doing three tempies, which means there's less time in between the strides, which means they're easier. So the horse doesn't have as much time to think. It's more rapid fire. You want to start your tempies later than you do with the fours. So for the fours, I start before the quarter line. For the threes, I'll start on the quarter line. Um, and then I should end on the quarter line. And the reason where you start matters is because you're being scored on whether or not your tempi changes are centered. So you don't want to start right coming out of the corner and then be done just after X. Um, that's not centered at all. So you want to make sure your changes are centered, which is why you do what you do here. So, um, yeah, this line is just easier. The horse doesn't have as much time to think. Um, and it's over faster. Um, so the horse doesn't necessarily have as much time to get so strung out. 
Um, with teaching, you'll tend to teach the fours and the threes either around the same time or the fours first. Um, the reason this is important is because teaching the fours, it doesn't necessarily feel like tempi changes to the horse. It's kind of like single changes close together. Um, so you might start with doing a couple five tempis, for instance. Um, so, and then slowly working up to your four tempis. Um, and this is kind of like tricking the horse a little bit. You're not necessarily scaring them. They're just thinking, oh, I'm doing single changes close together. Um, it doesn't feel like a movement. The threes feel like a movement. Um, there's a rhythm to them that the fours don't necessarily have. Um, and then, again, what I keep saying is the horse doesn't have as much time to think, which helps a lot. Um, but still, for a young horse or a horse that doesn't necessarily know what they're doing, the threes can be more daunting than the fours because they feel like a movement, because they have that rhythm, because they require that balance for longer. Um, the fours, you can be constantly fixing the horse, it's okay. For the threes, you can't be spending that time fixing the horse. The horse needs to be with you the whole time in order to get good changes. You don't have time to fix them in between the changes. The twos, just because I'm talking about tempi changes, we're going to talk about the twos. Um, the twos aren't particularly difficult to teach if you have the threes and the fours, I will say. Um, oh, Dia, for instance, she's kind of what I like to call plank-like. She throws her shoulders everywhere, but um, she doesn't need to be collected or extended to do changes. As I said before, she has a lot of canters she can do a change from, um, and she has a lot of different versions of Tempe Canter. She has her best Tempe Canter, which is what I do in the ring, um, but overall to get Tempe's from her, she can do it from many different canters. Um, I only do them from the one canter, or I tried only do them from the one canter. I might do them in um, not her best canter to warm up and then end up in the better canter, but I always end up in the best canter for the tempi changes. That doesn't mean she can't do them from many other canters. So she's good at doing tempi changes because she can do them under many circumstances. She can do them without tucking her butt underneath of her because she's kind of plank-like like that. She can just kind of throw her legs into the change without needing that collection. Um, the twos do require collection, um, more so than the threes and the fours, I would say. She can kind of get away with being out behind in the threes and the fours um, in a way she can't necessarily get away with it in the twos, um, but she's overall just good at doing tempis. Um, they're pretty easy for her, so teaching her how to do the twos isn't that difficult. The difference between the twos and the ones now, I would say the ones are very challenging um, because it's kind of more of a party trick, the ones. The twos, the threes, and the fours, they have a lot in common. There's a pattern to them, they're rhythmic, they are movements, um, and they're very similar. They're kind of just about counting. The ones, the horse is doing a change every stride, so there's no opportunity for them to be throwing their shoulders. They cannot be throwing their shoulders at all. They have to be stick straight um, and just tossing those legs around back and forth. Um, also without panicking. <laughs> this is the other thing. If a horse has too much time to think or if they're just overwhelmed, then they can't do the movement because they're not thinking about your aids. They're thinking about, oh my God, what are my legs doing right now? 
um, which can be really daunting. And that's part of the reason why Dia has done ones before. I've gotten, I think, four ones on her. Um, so she can do some ones, um, and maybe I'll do more with that later for her. Um, but they're challenging because the horse kind of gets frazzled as they're doing them. It's just like all of a sudden they realize what they're doing, and that's scary. So a lot of these movements are actually about making the horse comfortable with what they're doing because sometimes they think about what they're doing and then they just get intimidated um, and they get confused. They're like, wait, what am I doing? How am I doing this? What's going on? Um, so a lot of that has to do with it. So that's the end of our little um, <laughs> tangent about tempi changes. So back to the pre-St. George test. After you do your left line of fours and your right line of threes, then you just have this extended canter HXF across the diagonal. Um, and a change before F. So this line is hard, <laughs> like every other canter line in the pre-St. George test, but um, the HXF line is hard because you're going into extended canter at H. As I said, you don't want to start any extensions late, and you want to start them right at the line. So I'm pointing her, so I'm riding deep into that corner, and then I'm pointing her straight at H to F. Um, and then I want to kick her up the shoulders and kind of do that check up, the same thing I do um, at the trot, into that line. Um, and she should come up forward, extension of stride, um, a little bit of an extension of neck um, to meet that extension of stride. As I said, the horse can only step out as far as their nose. Um, but what will happen here when I kick her, sometimes horses do this, they'll change. And this is because I just got done with two hard lines of changes. So they're thinking about doing changes on diagonal lines and you're gonna kick them um, to ask for extended canter, and their first thought is going to be change. So this can be really challenging, um, and sometimes it's really difficult to predict whether or not your horse will do this, and it, it becomes a poking and hoping situation, which you never want to do, um, but sometimes it is what it is. You just have to put faith in your horse that they're going to do what you ask and not kind of panic and change. So if you made it through the beginning of your extended canter without the horse changing when you kicked them to enter the extended canter, you're doing very well. And all you have to do now is collect before F and then do your change. So the change, even though it's kind of at F, it might say before F on the test, but you want it on the line. You want it on the diagonal line, not in the corner. As I said, no changes in the corner. So extended canter all the way across the line. When you're kind of in line with P, start to collect and then ask for the change. Um, so nowhere near the same amount of collection do you need for this change after the extended canter as you need in the pirouettes, as you need before the halt that I described at the beginning of the test. You don't need anywhere near that much collection because a horse can change from extended canter. So you just kind of want to bring that extended canter back a little bit and then ask for the change and then you can collect in the corner. So use the corner to collect. Don't waste your time trying to collect in the middle of this diagonal line because you might run the risk of collecting the extended canter way too much, way too early, and then you lose marks on your beautiful extended canter because you tried to bring it back too soon for a change that didn't need to be that collected. The change doesn't need to be that collected. It just needs to be a good, accurate, straight, square change. It can be really big and expressive. That's good. Um, you can get really good marks for a big expressive change. It doesn't need to be small and expressive. It can be big and expressive. The judge doesn't care. 
So use that whole line to do your extended canter, tuck the horse's butt a little bit and collect a little bit for that change, do the change, and then just use this corner at F, the FA corner, to really collect the horse. And then you actually have another corner to collect because you're going to make a corner turning onto your center line, um, A to C. So you have these two really good corners to collect. And at this point, you should be in a really good balanced collected canter to do your halt at X. Um, so now your horse is exhausted though. So here, you just gotta make sure that they make it to X without collapsing. So I wanna make sure that my spurs are on. I have a heavy right rein at this point with Zia because she is so tired and she's just falling on that right side. So I'm holding her up entirely on that right side. And then I'm going to slam the balls of my feet into my stirrups and tuck my butt at X to ask for that halt and she should come right under and halt nice and square. Now, um, I'm just going to point out that she's so exhausted at this point, not only because she did all these canter movements, but because the last movement she did was the extended canter to the change. So it's like I asked her to spend any energy she had left in this extended canter. So in this sense, the placement of the extended canter in this test is very well done because it's at the very end, um, but it can just make this last halt very challenging. Um, so yeah, I think that concludes our talk about how to ride the pre-St. George test. This was in the context of Dia because she's the only horse I've ever ridden the pre-St. George on, but I think a lot of what I do on her is applicable to different horses. Of course, there are different strategies I do with her that I won't necessarily do with Ginny, but there are lots of things about this test that are universal. Like you want to ride your corners, as you probably heard throughout me narrating this test, you have to ride them like their movements. Um, I use the corners for all kinds of things. And treating your corners like movements really can help improve your ride because you're not kind of riding by the seat of your pants. You're not on the fly all the time. You're focusing on what you're doing um, and you're making everything an activity. You don't ever want to have a, a phase, especially in an FEI test where the movements are just one after the next. You never want to have a period where you're thinking about, oh, I'm waiting for the next movement to happen. You're never waiting for the next movement. You're preparing for the next movement. And use your corners to prepare for these movements because they're all you have <laughs> that, that you have the freedom to do whatever you want with. Um, the rest of the time is the judges. So you should use your corners because they're the only opportunities that you have um, for yourself to kind of like do your little freestyle, whatever you need to do. Um, your corners are your opportunity for freestyle. <laughs> the rest of the time is the judges. Um, so it's really important to use those corners. Um, all kinds of little strategies and techniques are universal, like the positioning of the horse's neck, um, technical things like that. Um, just knowing your horse really well can always improve a ride. Um, so yeah, I love to end things with so yeah, I'm not really sure why, um, it's just a conclusion technique for me. Okay, this is the end of the topic for this podcast episode, How to Ride the Pre-St. George Test, featuring many examples from Dia and a few from Ginny. The end. The segment for today's podcast will be happening at the end here, 
so we will now be discussing what Ginny did today. I just got off of Ginny. She was walking to her stall after I rode her like it was going to be her last day, so she's feeling quite tired. Might give her a little bit of butte to help her out with that tonight, so she's not quite so sore tomorrow. Um, and I'm going to be trying to talk a little bit slower in this podcast. Um, so hopefully the audio quality is a little bit better. So, what did Ginny do today to make her so tired? We were working on collected canter and extended canter, those transitions, and getting her to tuck underneath and collect a lot more. Um, for the changes, we worked on an extended canter on the diagonal line, to collected canter and then forward to a change. As I think I've mentioned before, you can't do a change from that super collected pirouette canter, um, so that's why you need to send the horse forward, even if it's necessary to bring them back from the extended canter before the change. So um, this kind of variability of the canter in the line can help her collect by making her do those transitions, which can therefore make the quality of the change better and allows me to not have to micromanage her so much before the change. So we worked on that for a little bit. Um, We also did these kind of leg yieldy diagonal lines. Um, They're kind of drifting lines. So For the FXH diagonal, for instance, so a lot of horses will hit the diagonal line and then kind of anticipate the change and then take off a little bit, grab the bit, get faster, go out behind. Horses do a lot of things. Ginny does all of those things. So when you turn onto an FXH diagonal line, for instance, this is an exercise I like to do with Ginny where we turn from F go straight towards H, and then kind of do a legal drift to C instead of landing at H. So it's kind of like an F to C sort of line instead of an FXH sort of line. Um, And this can help collect her more and keep her from doing that um, shoving off the hind legs thing, going up behind, getting faster, keeps her on my aids a little more. So after we did this extended canter collected to change and then also the kind of drifting lines, we took a walk break and then we worked on the half passes and keeping the half passes jumpy. If you recall, one of Dia's leads, uh, sorry, one of Ginny's leads is bigger than the other one. So Her left lead is smaller than her, her her right lead is smaller than her left lead. Um, So this means that the half pass right doesn't need as much sideways aid. So her half pass right is more about the jumpiness of the canter. Um, lifting her shoulders, bringing them over, making sure that she stays underneath and hops over more, keeps that bounce of the stride, 
whereas the left half pass, first of all, she struggles with going to that left rein. So a guiding open left rein at the beginning of the line is necessary, and then the rein has to go against the neck um, when you go to actually do the half pass. Um, so this is a bit of a challenge because she likes to go against that left rein, so sometimes midway through the line it's necessary to then open the left rein a little bit and then close it and then put the left rein back against the neck and maybe do that a few times. The open left rein asks her to go to the left rein. Um, putting it against the neck trusts that she's already in the left rein so then when she comes against the left rein midway through the half pass sometimes an adjustment needs to be made and the rein has to come off the neck unfortunately. Um, and because this way, so the left lead is a little bit bigger, um, it takes a bit more aid to get her over. And so if I use the same amount of aid um, as I do to the left to try to do the right half pass, my half pass ends up being way too steep. So I need to watch out for that. So after we work on these half passes today, we then kind of did this baby pirouette exercise. And this is how you teach the pirouettes to horses who don't do pirouettes yet. Um, so put the horse on a 10 meter circle um, and then put the haunches to the inside. So you're at a little haunches in on your 10 meter circle and then just really slow the canter down collect the canter, um, keep making the circle a little smaller and the canter a little smaller, keeping the haunches in, and then you're working on a baby pirouette. Um, so we did that both directions and let's take a moment to consider which direction we think she had a harder time, the left lead um, or the right lead pirouette. Canter, and I will take a few seconds so that you can think about this answer, and then I will let you know. Okay, so because her left lead is bigger than her right lead, the left lead is more difficult for her to do that super collected pirouette canter and that super small pirouette circle. Okay, so that concludes our segment, What Did Ginny Do Today?